Hi, I'm Dr. Melina Jampolis, and welcome to my brand new podcast, Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. Each week, I'm going to have amazing guests, many of which are my friends, including experts, doctors, best-selling authors, athletes, celebrities, and we're going to be talking about the latest science and also what they have studied. And what I'm really going to do in this show is not only teach you what you should do and can do, but what you will do and practical ways of doing that. Because we all kind of know what we should do. We kind of know what we can do, but what are we really going to do on a daily basis? So today I am beyond excited to speak to my guest. Um, and when I say she really did change my life, I am not exaggerating. Her book, uh, the Happiness Project, I read probably 10 years ago, and um, I'm just beyond thrilled to have her on the show. Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much for joining me. It is really, really exciting for me. I can't even tell you. You're like, I'm most excited about this. I hope my other guests don't get offended, but this book really did change things for me. So thank you and welcome. Oh, well, thank you. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Happy, well, there you go. You're already happy. So, no, but <laughs> We're I already do, happy. I do. I want to jump in first because I know I read, you know, in your book, you love hearing about other people's journeys. So the fact that, and this is where you and I, I think, have so much synergy too, is that there is no one size fits all when it comes to anything, health or yeah. happiness. So I just have to tell you real quick how it impacted me the most. Um I, we go to Colorado every summer to see my mom in August to Rocky Mountain National Park. And I love the changing of the leaves. I love fall colors, but I miss them every single year because it doesn't happen in August. And I felt like it was too indulgent to fly back again in September just to see the changing of the leaves. But after I read your book, I said, this is one of the things that brings me so much joy and walking around and seeing the explosive colors of nature and taking photographs. I said, I am going to bite the bullet. I'm flying back the next month to Colorado. And it was so extraordinary for me. And I just, it was so eye opening to just stop delaying these things or, or making excuses for not doing something that brought me such joy. So, so thank you for that. Um, I, I really was a gift, um, to me. I love that story. That's a wonderful example because sometimes we think like, oh, I can't do that or I shouldn't do that. And you're like, well, why not? Why couldn't I, maybe I could, um, and maybe I'm not going to do it every year, but I could do it this year in some years, or maybe I will do it every year. Um, it just, uh, it, it's, we have to have this constant examination of like, well, what really matters to me? Cause it, it doesn't always look the same for everybody. And so for you, those leaves are really important. So it's a really important value to uphold. Yeah. yeah and it's funny Wonderful. that you say that because I haven't done it since. Um, mm. but honestly the joy that it brought me and looking back at those photographs, I'm still happy as a result. Mm. I, I really, so I think that's really important that even if you do, cause I love, you know, so much of what you say. I mean, I feel like we could talk for about three hours cause I underlined <laughs> so much in your book, but let's just go back a little bit because for those that maybe haven't, aren't familiar with your work and, and how this journey started, it, it's pretty cool. Cause you were kind of, you know, a uh, uh, badass attorney, you know, I think you went to where, did you go to Yale law school or, and you were yes. clerking for uh, Supreme court justice yes. and you 
made a pretty radical departure. So tell us a little bit about how the Happiness Project came to be and, and your other work. Well, uh, you're right. I started my career in law and I was clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor um, when I realized that I actually wanted to be a writer. But many people assume that, that The Happiness Project was my first book. No, The Happiness Project was my fourth book. Like oh. many people, I worked for 10 years to become, to seem like an overnight sensation. So I actually had switched to being a writer many years before I wrote The Happiness Project. Um, and I just got to the point, I had an idea for a book that I wanted to write. I was working on it every night, all through the weekends. And at a certain point, I thought, you know, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. So let me just see if I can get this book published, get an agent and get it published. So I did. And then the moment for the Happiness Project, I was finishing up my book um, called 40 Ways to Look at JFK. Mm. And I was stuck on a city bus in the pouring rain. And I thought, you know, I looked out the window and I thought, well, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I want to be happy. But I realized I didn't spend any time thinking like, am I happy? Could I be happier? What does that even mean? So I went out to the library, got a giant stack of books and started researching happiness. What is it? Can you change your happiness level? Um, and at first it was just going to be a project for me, for my happiness. But then the subject was so vast and fascinating. And I just wanted to do more and more and more research and try more and more things. And then finally I thought, well, maybe this could be my next book project. And in fact, um, ever since then, I've written more sort of more books on happiness better than before, which is all about how to change our habits because habits are so important for happiness. The Four Tendencies, which is all about a personality framework that helps you figure out how to um, stick to your habits and understand like how you can make change, which it might be very different from somehow some, someone else would make change. I wrote a little book called Outer Order, Inner Calm um, about why for so many people outer order contributes to inner calm. Um, but not everybody. Um, and I wrote a book called Happier at Home because, uh, you know, for a lot of people, if we're not happy at home, it's really hard to be happy. Well, I um, bet, yeah, I bet that was especially relevant during COVID since we spent so much time. Did you see a spike in sales? I mean, everybody was spending so much time at home too. I well, mean, it's that's... interesting because, yeah, I wrote that book several years ago and there was a resurgence of interest in it just because so many people were thinking about, um, you know, what am I going to do with my home? Yeah, absolutely. So let's, you know, there's honestly, again, about a hundred things that I want to ask you at the same time, but I'll try to stay organized and focused. You know, let's talk a little bit about habits because yeah. that that's something that really resonates with with me. And, it, and it's certainly, you know, in working with patients, whether it's, you know, focusing on weight management or eating for longevity and exercising for improving health. And I, I, I think that's really a struggle. So, so like, give us some habit building wisdom because, and, and I'm mm. going to apply this tomorrow to seeing patients. So this is great for me too, but I think, um, this is, this is really important and, and you have to have habits to be healthy too, but tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, I think you really hit on the key point earlier when you said there's no magic one size fits all solution. And I think that's really, really important to understand because sometimes people think like, well, I just want to know the best way or I want to know the right way. And if I could just do that, then I would achieve my aims. And then sometimes if they don't do it, they think, well, there's something wrong with me or I'm lazy or I can't put myself first. I can't keep my promises to myself. Whereas, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to change ourselves, but it's such easier to change our surroundings, our schedule. Um, and so a lot of it is understanding how to set yourself up for success. And you were talking about eating habits. And here's one thing that was a huge revelation to me. 
which is when it comes to strong temptation, not weak temptation, but strong temptation. Some people are abstainers and some people are moderators. And an abstainer is someone like me. Abstainers find it easy to have none. Once we start, it's hard for us to stop, but it's pretty easy for us to have none. So I can have no Thin Mint cookies. I can have a sleeve of Thin Mint cookies. I can't have one Thin Mint cookie. I can't have half a brownie. I can't have a little dish of ice cream, um, but it's pretty easy for me to have none. Yeah. And then there are moderators and moderators feel kind of panicky and rebellious if they're told they can't have any. They do better when they have a little bit or when they do it sometimes, when they have a few French fries, you know, off someone's plate. And the funny thing is, is that moderators and abstainers are always telling each other they're doing it wrong. So as an abstainer, I have people saying to me, hey, it's not healthy to be so rigid. You shouldn't demonize certain food. You should follow the 80-20 rule. Don't be so harsh. And I'm like, but that doesn't work for me. 80-20 doesn't work for me because the minute I have that sweet in my mouth, I have this bonkers sweet tooth. The minute right. I have it, I just want more and more and more. If I have none, I don't care. It's fine. But then if I say to moderators, hey, just keep a rule and stick with it. Why do you go cold turkey? Why can't you just follow the rules for yourself? They say that doesn't work for me. Yeah. And it's not because one of us is right and one of us is wrong or one way is better or the right way. Or I need to evolve out of abstaining into becoming a moderator, which some people are like, well, after a while, you'll learn to moderate. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think so I'm either. I'm a grown up now, yeah. man. And I still, I have that one little taste and all I want is more, 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 more. And to me, that is boring and draining. I don't like that noise in my head. It's easier for me not to have any, yeah. but this isn't true for everyone. And so I think a lot of times people feel like I'm right, you're wrong, or they think you're right, I'm wrong. And it's really like, no, neither of us is right or wrong. It's just a question of what works for you. And if what you're doing now isn't working, Maybe you try something else because maybe some other situation will work better for you. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an outstanding point. I'm, I'm going to ask you another a follow-up question, but it's interesting because um, I am definitely – I, and and I I think I I do think I changed a little bit because I was more like you. If it was one Girl Scout cookie, it was a hundred, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe it was moving to LA, but and and not wanting to live in deprivation for the rest of my life. But I changed. I don't think of it as deprivation. Right. It doesn't feel but like I, deprivation. But to I me. love I love sweets, and I can very easily. It's so funny because I have a candy drawer in my house. Yep. And I completely forget about it. And I can go in every once in a while and have like one piece of chocolate or a bite of a chocolate chip cookie. And my husband found my candy drawer and it was like wiped clean the next time yes, I looked yeah. at it. So he is definitely <laughs> yes. not, um, yeah. you know, but I think research shows it. it this is fascinating to me because it's, it's where, you know, kind of not pop culture, but, you know, culture merges with science because research shows that that everything in moderation is very outdated. And I mm -hmm. think that probably the reason that is, is because, you know, it's when you, in medicine, we talk about a waterfall curve to where there's going to be lots of people that do great on a low carb diet. And there's going to be lots of people that do terrible. But if you just look at the mean, it doesn't work, but that's, yeah. we don't, we aren't means we aren't yes. statistics. We aren't numbers. So yes. I love that you say that. My question is though, do you think, because, and this is just, you know, for me to help patients too, is yeah. do you think people instinctively know 
what they are or are there things that they can do to um, kind of you know, figure out whether they're better off cold turkey or moderation, maybe for anything in life, for alcohol, you know, I mean, yeah. that's something that I'm, I'm doing a segment coming up for TV talking about alcoholic hepatitis. And I was like, geez, I really should cut back, you know, it's, it's, um, but are there ways that we can kind of evaluate ourselves and, and really figure out because, you know, some of my patients would probably say, well, I'd love to be able to have it. I'm not sure. Is it trial right. and error? How does that work? Right. Well, I think like if something's not working with for you, try something else. And this is what I just have to say to all these people who are like, I can't be a moderate an abstainer. The thing there, a lot of people are like, well, I want, I, I, I am a moderator, but it doesn't work for me. And I'm like, well, maybe you need to try the abstaining way. And here's the thing that I want to say to everybody who's thinking about abstaining. It sounds so hard. It sounds demanding. It sounds like deprivation. You think I don't want to do that. But here is the thing, and I am here to tell you, as somebody who has just like the most bonkers sweet tooth, once you stop having it, you don't want it anymore. It just fades away. You do not crave it. You do not have this feeling of give me, give me, give me. And, and the fact is, the less you indulge, the less you will have that experience. And somebody said to me like, well, I'm going to just have something like once a week. And I'm like, well, you're really going to keep that activated then. To me, right. that, like to me, an abstainer is like, maybe you have it on your anniversary. You know, I gave up sugar like in 2012. And I mean, I had a slice of cake at my sister's wedding. You know what I mean? Like I really don't wow. eat sugar. And um, and so I don't care about it. It doesn't tempt me. I can be in a meeting with lots of cookies or it's Halloween and there's candy everywhere and I don't eat it. it to me, it's like it's like uncooked rice. I don't eat it. It's not it's not something that it's not, it's just not something that calls to me. Right. Um, and so if, if you feel like ooh, food is just nagging, nagging, nagging at me or like, you know, whether it's chips and, and, and French fries, or it's sweets, just try saying like, I'm just going to give it up. And I think what many people find is that once they've stopped eating it for a while, it stops clamoring at them because they imagine themselves constantly living in this state of craving, right. but actually the craving diminishes. And so it, it gets easier instead of harder. And, and I think, and I've heard from so many people, cause I talk about this. It's like so many people are like, Oh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> it's COVID. We're used to this. Yeah. Um, so many people um, are th say like, oh, well, people told me it wasn't healthy to just right. stop eating, um, you know, cakes and cookies and pastry or whatever. I thought that I should have it a little bit. It's like it's just whatever works for you. Yeah. And so I would say whatever you're doing, if the thing is, if it, if it works for you, that's great. Don't let anybody tell you you're doing it wrong. Like you're you. It works well for you to have a yeah. drawer full of Halloween candy. That's great. So fine. That's great for you. Like right. you feel good about that. It's easy. If you don't feel good about it, you might try something else because it might be that that would suit you much better. It's just a way of experimenting, you know, yeah, and, no. and when something things, doesn't work, you've learned something about yourself. Sure. And one of the things just from to bring the science to it, because I mean, I think that's, you know, what, what, one of the things that I think, and, and I think you would agree with this is that, you know, it, it, it can be very stressful that, to make all these decisions every day. And we have to make yes. a, a study show that we make over 227 food and beverage decisions every yes. day. So you go to Starbucks, what size am I getting? What milk am I yeah. getting? What sugar am I getting in it? What yeah. am I getting food with it? And, yeah. and to take away, and I think this is why, um, you know, any, a, a diet that if, that's why it makes sense to me why this works because right. you have 
that many fewer decisions. If sugar is yep. off the table, then you go into Starbucks and you know exactly your choices are. And, and yes. I think that, that especially for somebody who doesn't, I mean, I think for me, one of the things is I know so much about nutrition that I know how to do it right. You know, like for example, I would never eat sugar on an empty stomach because that's going to make me crave sugar more because it's going to cause a more rapid drop in my blood sugar, which is going to make me crave sugar more. So my rule is I only have sugar for dessert after a meal that has had a healthy balance of fat and protein and carbs. So that, you know, I understand a lot. And I also understand a lot more about how my body works, but I think taking those decisions away, I think simplifying, you know, just how you go through your day has got to be something that can make you happier. I mean, right. No, no, you're absolutely right. Decision fatigue is real. It's very draining. And also like the more that we're making decisions, the more we can decide wrong. So if you're sort of like now, later, two, three, after breakfast, after lunch, after dinner, I deserve it. It's raining. My foot hurts after the day I've had with the boss I have, given everything that I do for everybody else. It's like, you know, we are so good at coming up with reasons and loopholes and arguments and excuses. Um, In my book, Better Than Before, I identify the 10 categories of loopholes. Like there are Mm. 10 big categories because we're so good at finding reasons to let ourselves off the hook. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right. When you simplify the decision-making, um, so like, I'm a very low carb person. I'm really yeah. in one of those. I know Liz told people. me, your sister told me I'm friends yeah. with her sister guys. So I, yes. I, I have a little yes. bit of inside information on you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of, everybody needs a hobby. It's kind of my hobby. I have to say, but, but it da- absolutely makes decision-making easier because it's just like, well, would I have this? And I'm like, no, because that's really high carb. So I don't need it. Um, and uh, because I think you're right, the decision fatigue is it's just a constant drain on our energy. And we want to preserve that decision making things for for things that are more important and, and, and more complex. We don't want to drain ourselves deciding about our uh, deciding, deciding our Starbucks order. Right. But you absolutely could, you know, wear yourself yeah, I mean, out you're like done already. It's yeah. like too many yeah. different decisions. But and that just will wrap this up. But I, it's the other thing that I hate about the cheat meal, too. The idea of I'm going to plan to cheat. It's like. I'd rather somebody kind of go with their life. Like, wow, uh, you come across something and rather than totally depriving yourself, you know, so there's, there's so many different oh, iterations well, of this. So no, that's a really good point. And I, I, maybe I think about it a little bit differently as a, as a true abstainer. So sometimes people say to me, look, I'm an abstainer day to day, but I don't want to live the rest of my life without a slice of cake. I don't want to live the rest of my life without pasta or whatever. So what I would say you should use is a planned exception. So you don't run into something at the last minute and indulge because that way you're not keeping your promises to yourself. What you do is you plan something in advance. You're like, I am going out for my anniversary dinner and we're going to go to my favorite restaurant and they have the best tiramisu I've ever had in my whole life. And I'm going to order it and I'm going to love it. And I anticipate it with pleasure and I eat it with gusto and I look back on it with pleasure because I... I'm keeping my promise to myself and I'm planning an exception. I'm a grown up. I can have an exception. I want to basically not eat that sugar, but, right. I, and this isn't really a temptation. Right. It's, it's not something that I'm giving into in the, in the moment. It's something that I'm really planning for. And so I can sort of control it. And I do want to too. feel in yeah. control of ourselves. But the problem is, is when you're like, Oh, opportunistic, well, you're going to see those opportunities five times a day. That's true. It's on sale. It's their specialty. It's my birthday. You're here from out of town. Yeah. It It's pumpkin spice latte. You can only get this <laughs> certain time of the year. It's the holidays. It's January 1st. It's thanks. I mean, there's just so many of these, yeah. but a planned exception. You're like, I'm going to look across the horizon. How many of these do I want to have? Not that many. Cause I want them to be special. 
Yeah, no, I, I like that. I like that. And I guess I inherently do that. I, I don't like the organized cheat meal where you every yes. week you get a cheat meal. Cause I think yes, that's, I don't but either. I think yes. what we're talking about, I do that. Like if I go out to dinner and I know I'm going to my favorite restaurant that has X dessert, I am going to choose a different entree so that I can indulge. So I'm, I'm actually planning a lot. I mean, for me, it's kind of fun cause it's my job. And then I translate that into what I do with patients, but no, I love that. But but let's move on because I want to talk. I did your uh, I did your survey online. Um, mm. And um, wait, what what is the name of the survey again? It's the Four Tendencies Quiz. It's the, a quiz to see if you're uh, an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. Right. Right. Okay. So I did the uh, I did the quiz, and I'm a questioner. And my friend mm-hmm. thought I was going to be. Wait, what was the first one you said? Upholder. Upholder. Uh, no, I don't know. I can't remember what she said, but so what does that mean? What, well, tell us okay. a little bit about the questionnaire, how it kind of yeah. can, can help us be happier. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to explain it very briefly and most people know what they are just from a really brief description, but people can take the quiz. If you go to GretchenRubin.com slash four tendencies, F O U R four tendencies, you can, it's, it's a quick quiz. It's like three and a half million people have taken the quiz. It'll give you a little report. Some people yeah. like to get like a report, yeah. um, but most people know what it is. So what this looks at is something that's a very narrow aspect of your personality, but something that's very important, which is how do you respond to expectations? Mm-hmm. So there are outer expectations like a work deadline and there are inner expectations like I want to quit eating sugar or I want to keep a New Year's resolution. So depending on whether you meet or or resist outer and inner expectations. That's what makes you an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is discipline is my freedom. Okay. Then there are questioners like you. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They don't like anything arbitrary or inefficient. They want everything to be customized and optimized. They need to have reasons and justifications. So they're making everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they'll do it no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. So their motto is I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. Mm. So these are the people who say, well, I don't understand. I can keep my promises to everybody else. Why can't I keep my promises to myself? So when an an obliger needs outer accountability, even to meet an inner expectations, if you want to read more, you join a book group. If you want to exercise more, you work out with a friend who's annoyed if you don't show up or you take a class or you work with a trainer or you think of your duty to your future self or your duty to be a role model to someone else. And um, so the motto of the obliger is you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. They often love a challenge. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And they typically don't tell themselves what to do. Like they don't decide, oh, I'm going to stop eating bread because they're like, now I'm just going to go out and eat a bunch of bread because nobody tells me what to do, not even me. So their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I love so it. I love that you have your the mottos. Yeah. What's... Yeah. Your your tendency is the second largest tendency. Questioner. Obliger is the biggest tendency for both men and women. Obli- mm-hmm. You either are an obliger. You have a lot of obligers in your life. Mm-hmm. The smallest tendency is rebel. And my tendency, the upholder tendency, is just a little bit bigger. We're the kind of extreme fringe personality tendencies. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So as a, so then how I'm based on what you described, I'm a thousand percent a questioner. I fit Mm -hmm. into that because when you were saying, I I mean, I I question, and, and I think that being able to be a questioner also comes with some mature, you have to have maturity and self-confidence. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I mean, I'm immature. you might get it, but they're question. I mean, they're three-year-old questioners. Oh. You know, you're, I, I really believe in the genetic roots of personality. So okay. I think these are hardwired. So Interesting. they're not something that you evolve into. They're something that you bring into the world with you. Oh, wow. Okay. So then how does that translate into, or, or does it, what's the tie into happiness? You choose different things, different mech- vehicles to, is there, what's the association? Well, the good news is there's not one tendency that's the happiest or the healthiest or the most successful. The most the the, the people who do the best are the ones who've sort of figured out how to how to harness the strengths of their tendency and how to offset the limitations and weaknesses of their tendency. Um, but and you're exactly right. Why these are useful when we're thinking about happiness and good health and good habits is that you would approach it differently knowing your tendency. So if you're an obliger, you know you need outer accountability even for an inner expectation. So if you wanted to Um, start eating healthier, you'd have to think about, well, okay, how would I create outer accountability for that? So maybe you're going to announce to everybody at work that you're not going to eat anything from the vending machine. And maybe you're going to say, I've heard of funny things where somebody's like, if I eat dessert, my husband eats two desserts and I don't want my husband to eat two desserts. So I have none. Or I, um, uh, I'm going to think of my duty to be a role model for someone else and how my habits are going to affect other people. You know, there's a million ways to create outer accountability once you know what that is. But like, and let's say you're dealing with a questioner. Questioners need to know why. So like if you were trying to advise a questioner on how to eat more healthfully, you'd really want data, you'd want research, you want customization um, so that they were really convinced that why should I listen to you? Right. Like you really need to show them why they would want to do it because once they're convinced, they'll follow. But if you're with a rebel, Rebels are very much like for them, it's much more about like identity, freedom and choice. So I eat this way because I respect my body. I'm an environmentalist. I'm an athlete. I'm a cook who loves exotic, fresh cuisines. I love going to new restaurants and and outdoor markets and, and, and eating unprocessed, fresh, healthy food. That's who I am. Right. You know, I'm not doing what the doctor tells me to do. I'm not following any guidelines. Like you're telling me I got to stay away from this. Well, maybe that's just going to make me want it more. No, but I do what I want. Um, yeah, and and so in upholder, it's just like, oh yeah, what are the rules? I'll follow them. Like, and that's what I do. Right. I, you know, I like I'm an upholder, and I like eating low carb. And one of the reasons I like it is it's just very clear, and I just do it. But I have a friend who's a rebel. He's low carb too, because he's like, oh my gosh, all the big food companies are trying to control me with their big, right, their right, fancy right. packages and their advertising campaigns, and they can't control me. So, you know, it's you know, so funny. Both, I, I yeah. think I've been doing, I, I really, um, you've changed my life again, Gretchen. You oh, are, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, because I, I, you know what? I think I've been doing something a little wrong. And this is, this is one of the things, this is one of the things I'm proud of myself as a physician is that the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good thing to be in anything in life is to be, but I think that, you know, one of the things that I always push my patients to do 
is to uh, focus more on intrinsic motivation mm. than Ooh, external. Yeah. But but yeah. now listening to you and learning about these like uh, uh, you know archetypes, basically, um, I'm realizing that depending on the person, that yeah. may be the completely wrong approach, and I'm setting themselves up for failure because. That's not what drives them. I just, I always intuitively, and maybe this is just my own, you know, again, you, you have a schema that you go through life. And, but I always felt like if a habit was internally driven, it would be more likely to stick long-term. So if I could, haven't you noticed that that isn't the case? Yes. Now that you say that (laughs) I'm one, it's like, wait, how many of them would that not work for? What percentage of patients have I screwed up on in the last, oh God, 20 years of uh, seeing them. But with, so which patient type that's not going to work for somebody who is more obliger, an obliger. Okay. And that's a, a big percentage of people you said, right? The biggest. Yeah. The biggest number of people are obligers. Um, Right. And I think a lot of times um, the other tendencies will say like, well, it shouldn't matter what you like. You shouldn't need outer accountability. If it's important to you, you should be able to do it. Right. And they really make the obliger feel bad because first of all, it doesn't work for them. And then it's all like, not only do I not have this healthy habit, but I feel like I'm a failure for the fact that I'm struggling. Whereas what I would say is like, look, this is the biggest group of people. There's a lot of people in the same boat with you. And they've come up with so many imaginative, ingenious solutions for the kind of things you're struggling with. So don't try to change yourself or do just figure out like a, a, a quick, easy solution, because people really do come up with very, very elegant solutions. Um, and well, you know, my sister is an obliger who, you know, and she, and she was, is trying to eat more healthfully because she's a type one diabetic yeah. and one she works in Hollywood. So one of the things she does is whenever, and this is in the before times, but because they have all this food, like if you work in Hollywood, on the set, food, right. The craft yeah, services. Oh my gosh, yeah. And then in the writer's room, it's just like everything yeah. you could possibly have. And she just comes in and she goes, I just want you to know, I don't eat this. I don't have this. I bring my own food from home. That's what I eat. I don't need any of this. Cause she feels like she wants everybody's eyes on her, like feeling like, is Elizabeth going to eat those donuts? You know? And she wants that feeling because that accountability helps her. Whereas like a rebel would not like that feeling. They don't like the feeling of being micromanaged or people looking over their shoulder. And so for them, it's much more like, well, this is what I choose to do because that's the kind of person I am. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes obligers kind of feel bad. Like they need this outside scaffolding. I'm like, yeah. who who cares if you need it? It's fine. Like, what's the big deal? I think that explains why your sister likes me so much, even though I'm not nearly as literary as no, I'm just, I, I love you guys for the, I love, and the quotes in the book, like, I love it that writers can, can say things or quote things in a way that explains it better than you ever could in real mm-hmm. life. I think that's the coolest thing, but uh, that must be why Liz, you know, I taught her to play poker, by the way. So yes, if you see her, I yeah. Know. So, but that must be why she loves coming over because she knows that I'm always going to be in the background, you know, watching and paying attention to what I can't help it. It's not like I'm judging yeah. people, but it's no, my no, no, job, no. you know, yeah. but, yeah. um, so, so that's super cool. So let's move on a little bit. I were like, I knew I was going to have way too much to talk to you about, but like some of the new stuff that you're working on, you had mentioned that you're working on a new book about the five senses. And of course, yes. you know, you had mentioned, you know, spices with, which is, my passion, uh, yeah. and I've written my last two books on it. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Well, I just realized that I think like a lot of people, I was sort of all up in my head and um, kind of very, very absent-minded. And I felt, I felt disconnected from kind of like the world around me. And I've always been really, really 
um, a person who loves smell, like even bad smells. Like I'm just really interested in smell. And for some reason I got really preoccupied with color a while back and like was just doing all this thinking about color. And these things got me thinking about the role of the body in the five senses and just giving me a feeling of vitality and, and appreciation of the world. And, and also like, I don't have much of a sense of, of the sense of sound, like so many people love music. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't have that so much. So I wanted to like get more of what I loved and then also maybe like activate some senses that were, were less, that were kind of less uppermost in my experience. And so that's what my next book is about. And it's just the most delightful book because there's so much just, you know, this five senses is just the richest, most delicious subject of all time. So I'm having a wonderful time working on that book. I think, I think that's super cool. And, and, and again, you know, from the, the doctor standpoint, um, you know, it's, it's such an interesting thing because, you know, when we, when we talk about eating healthier and that sort of thing, most people, the first thing that comes to mind is like steamed broccoli and boiled chicken, you know, that's, and, and that's what I love about, you know, spices and, and that they, and, and it's amazing to me that like cultures throughout the world, it's such a part of, of their history and their culture and, and adding wonderful flavor and aromas to food and the extraordinary health benefits. And here in the United States, we, we just, it's almost like, and, and, you know, it's funny, my, my good friend wrote the book, French women don't get fat. And she is constantly, you know, criticizing food and the flavor and the taste in this country. And she's like, Melina, you do not know what real cheese tastes like. And I'm like, well, Mireille, I did grow up in France, so I do know that. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I'm really, I think that's, that's exciting. And it's funny because when you say color, like that's why I painted my back wall blue. I actually saw um, a picture from uh, the, uh, I think it was the Louvre in Paris, and they had paintings displayed on a bright blue wall like this. And it it really brought me great joy. So I'm sure that there's a tie-in between kind of optimizing your sensory experience and and happiness. So um, I think that's going to be super cool to, uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. Oh, good. Yes. I'm having so much fun working on it for sure. So I, I have to, I mean, I, I, I just, uh, before we wrap up, there's a, there's like a few quotes that you have, the paradoxes of happiness. And, and I think one of them, I, I did want to ask you before I say a few quotes and just get a little back and forth. Um, what if you have, cause this popped into my head over the weekend and I'm like, oh my God, I'm interviewing Gretchen. I've got to ask her. <laughs> what if two things that really make you happy are in complete conflict with one another. And here's my weekend example. I love going to thrift stores. I love exploring and finding treasures and cool knickknacks. I was actually looking for my son's Halloween costume for a lampshade, but, um, and I just, it gives me such joy. It really does to like uncover dusty things and wonder whether it's something cool but I also hate clutter and I like it's, and I'm not good about keeping up with clutter. And, and so I brought all this stuff home and I was so excited. And my husband's like, really, where are we going to put that? Like, so what do you do when like two things are in direct opposition with one another? And I mean, this would translate obviously to, to diet and being healthy and all that stuff, but I'm, it, let's, let's talk about me. <laughs> 
Well, you're right. Sometimes what it is, is it's like what gives me pleasure right now versus what gives me pleasure in the long run. And, and there you say, well, you don't want to do something that makes you feel good in the present that just makes you feel bad in the future. So that's different. But you're talking about kind of two separate values. And I would say this is more analogous to the person who's like, I want to come home and rest and relax and put up my feet and read a novel. But I also want a house that's like picked up and tidy and like is really like pleasing and orderly to the eye. And it's like, I can't lie on the sofa and read a novel and live in a house that's all picked up because I have to spend, you know, I have to, I have to pick up all the dog toys or whatever. Um, so that's right. So I think that there's a couple different things you can think about. One is, um, is there a way that you can have two values? So maybe you go to the thrift store, but you don't buy anything. Um, or maybe you go to the store, you buy things, you bring it home, and then you just donate them right back again. So then you're basically just, you're, you're just, um, you know, giving money to the thrift store, which maybe you're fine with that. You're paying for the fun of going to the thrift store, just the way people know they're going to lose money in Vegas. And they're like, yeah, I'll lose a couple hundred dollars because it's fun to spend the night, spend a night playing, you know, like, you know, gambling with my friends. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like the price you pay for the fun. So maybe you want to do that. Um, or you can just not go to the thrift store. Um, but that sounds like that would sort of diminish your enjoyment of life because this is something that you truly, truly love. Yeah. Um, now I wonder if there's something, this is something that I've heard from a surprisingly large number of people for online shopping, because, because as much as you're tempted by thrift stores, people struggle far, far more with online shopping because it's just so much more convenient. Um, and what a lot of people say they do is they'll put things in their cart or they'll put things on their wish list. And it's almost by like grabbing those things and identifying those things as like, this is what I want. That's enough. And then they just abandon cart or, or never go back to their wish list or they go back to their wish list. And usually they're like, in the end, I, you know, after, after kind of the, it's gone cold, I didn't even really want it anymore. So maybe you're sort of like, Oh, I'm going to look at all these fun things, but if I want them, I'll come back for them. Yeah. You know, or even if you're at a large thrift store, what can work sometimes is like, okay, I'm not going to have a basket or a cart. I have to carry it in my arms. <laughs> and then also I'm not going to pick it up the first time. I'm going to look, 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 look. And then I'll come back and get something because by the time you're done, you're like, oh, there was that cute salt and pepper shaker in the form of pumpkins. But now that I'm all the way at the other side of the store, do I really want to go back and find them? Now, if it's a little cute thrift shop that's one room it might you might just be stepping like five steps away but if it's like a big goodwill center where it's like you know large that might work so part of what you want to do is make it less convenient because when we're trying to resist things it's always easier when we use the strategy of inconvenience you you put in more friction you make it like make it more of a nuisance or a pain yeah same and with a lot food. of times the research shows that if you put food on the top shelf or Absolutely. even if you put it on a desk across from the office versus yes. on your own desk yes. you're going to eat less Yes. So I love that. Yes. I, I, it's just like you put um, like put the TV remote control in a completely different room on a high shelf behind a cabinet, like anything that that yeah. that breaks that impulsivity. Um, yeah, it tends to do it. And then it's like, if you really, really want it, like you need the lampshade for the costume, for like sure. that's the whole reason you're there. You're not going to walk out of the store without the lampshade. So you're going to walk all the way back to get that. But the salt and paper pepper shakers, yeah, not so much. Yeah. Um, so maybe that would be a way that you get the fun of because I think a lot of times in a thrift store, it's the fun of the hunt. Yeah. It's like pouncing and the on the discovery. Something. And I guess I could just take a picture of it take and a picture bring it of home it. and be like, oh, look Great at these idea. cute salt and pepper shakers. I love that. Yes. Okay. I'm not gonna get to all my quotes because uh, there's just too many. And I, I love I love everything you say. So I'm probably gonna have to have you back if you're up to it. But so let's let's finish. I li- I like to finish every episode by really kind of um giving as practical like i'm just curious what you really do practically and we know 
you know, diet is certainly one of them, but outside of diet, like what are some practical things that you do to stay healthy? And I, I say, you know, the podcast is called Practically Healthy because it's a bit of a double entendre, right? You're yeah. Practically, not perfectly, but it's also practical. So tell us, Gretchen Rubin, some some uh, inspiring things just from you and maybe some people it'll resonate with and maybe they don't, but I'm just curious. Well, one thing I do is I really make sure that I get enough sleep um, because sleep, uh, like a good night's sleep makes everything, everything else in your life that you're trying to do easier. Um, so I make sure that, you know, I have a bedtime and I really try to go to sleep by my bedtime. I get up at the same time every day to get that consistency. I make sure to get early morning light that kicks up my circadian rhythm. I exercise regularly for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is for sleep. I get ready for sleep well before um, I plan to go to bed because I realized sometimes I'd be so tired that I would stay up because I was too tired to take out my contact lenses. Clearly not a good thing. Um, and another thing that I do is I really like, you know, research contemporary scientists and ancient philosophers agree that relationships are the key to happiness. And so anytime I'm trying to think about how to spend my time, energy or money, if it's something that's going to deepen relationships or broaden relationships, I really try to do it. So if somebody invites me to a book party and I'm like, oh, I don't think I'm going to know very many people there. I really try to go because maybe I'll see some people I don't expect to see. Maybe I'll meet somebody new that's going to broaden my relationships. Or if someone's like, hey, are you going to the college reunion? I'm like, it's kind of a hassle. It's kind of expensive. It's like a lot of like logistics to deal with. But yeah, I'm going to go if I can, because I know it's going to deepen my relationship with people that I've known for a really long time. And that's important. So if I'm going to, you know, um, my father said something really wise about um, seeing like seeing, you know, traveling to see people. He said that frequency is more important than duration. Mm. And so and that's really influenced me. So I'm like, even if like an old friend of mine was in town and I'm like, we can only see each other for two hours, but that's a hundred percent worth it. It's not like, Oh, if I can't, if I can't spend the whole night with you, um, like, let's just not worry about it. It's like, no, seeing you for two hours is enough to be important. If just going for an overnight visit is so much better than not going at all. Like, uh, you know, a quick text is so much better right. than like the long email you never send or the long phone call you never make. And so, um, so I think a lot about how to deepen and broaden relationships. And I think the fact that you just said that is so interesting because it just really brings home the point of there is no one size fits all. Because I yeah. feel like yes. for me, um, for the most part, that really isn't a priority in my life right now. And it, it doesn't. And maybe I'm an outlier in that way. Um, but I have so many other things that bring me such joy that are more internal, I guess, kind of deepening an, a very narrow circle of relationships, but certainly mm. not, not broadening. And I, I guess I, I'm on a constant journey to find more substantive connections. But I think that's, for me, it's hard to do at this stage of my life with younger kids and a very mm -hmm. busy work schedule. And, and maybe I need to pri prioritize that more. I mean, maybe it's, it's a blind spot that I have, but it's so interesting because when you said that, I was like, Mm, no, I don't think that would make me happier. But I mean, that this just goes to say, but it, it is, I'm going to think about it after this for sure, because I think uh, maybe I'm again, missing the boat on something, or maybe I'm not, maybe right now it's, it's well, not well, something. One thing I'd suggest for somebody in your, in that stage of life is like, uh, like some kind of group. It could be a book group. It could be a parent's group. It could be a fly fishing group. It could be you know, a, a bestsellers group. It could be a magazine reading group. You could all watch squid games together. You know, I knew of a group ski that was moms. called Serial, ski moms. and yeah, 
cereal and cereal. And they would, this is when the podcast cereal was new and they would meet every week and eat breakfast cereal and listen to the podcast cereal together. Um, because then it's like, maybe you see each other once every six weeks, you plan it, you see a bunch of people all at once. It's very efficient, which is kind of a funny way to think about friendship, but it lets you build and deepen those ties over time. And so for people who are really busy, it's kind of a manageable way to do it. And I think, um, so I think for some people that can be a really good way to make sure that you're keeping up relationships. Right. So that then later when you have more time and flexibility, they're still there for you. Um, because you know, a, a, a big thing about among adults is feeling like they don't, they don't have the friendships that they want. And this happens to people at many different stages. Um, and it's definitely something that I think is like you say, it's, it's worth thinking about and thinking about kind of how it fits into your life. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I am, uh, I'm going to think a lot about that and just what that means to me and how to implement that in my crazy schedule. Cause I mean, it goes back to your point. You're like, you've got to make time for the things that, that build you up, that, that lay the foundation of happiness. And if you don't, you're going to be uh, kind of always chasing it a little bit. Cause you don't know. I talk a lot about that. I, I just can't stop talking, but I talk a lot about that in, in everything that I do with patients and building a healthy lifestyle is that you really need to build the foundation, you know, uh, yes. uh, to sustain it. So I, I love that. And I'm going to give it some more thought, but okay, we could go on literally for another hour. Cause I have 50,000 <laughs> other questions, but, um, I've been told that the optimal time for a podcast is like, you know, 35 to 45 minutes. So who knows? Um, whatever I'll learn as I go, but Gretchen, thank you so much. It's been just beyond a pleasure to, to virtually meet you. And I hope we can make it happen in person someday, either in New York or LA. But again, uh, for listeners, uh, this is Gretchen Rubin, the author of many books. The happiness project was, uh, the fourth one. So, um, and you can learn more about her and what she's doing at GretchenRubin.com. And And I uh, have a podcast. Oh, right. Your amazing (laughs) pod. What's the, the podcast is, uh, happier with Gretchen Rubin. Happier um, with Gretchen. It's a weekly Rubin. podcast about how to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. And Liz is on that podcast with she you. Is. You She's guys, my co-host, my sister. Yeah, you guys did a world tour. You did. I remember you. You like we toured did. the country. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. So definitely uh, subscribe to her podcast for sure, and then mine afterwards. So <laughs> Gretchen, yeah. thank you again so much. Um, you've been listening to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. Gretchen Rubin was my guest today. I'm going to have wonderful, wonderful guests like her coming up. And um, I hope you enjoy it and subscribe and comment and ask questions and go out and buy all of her books. So thanks again, Gretchen. Take care. Thank you. It was so fun to talk to you. Bye.